1929, Gerald Holland wrote in American Mercury magazine, whatever odium may be attached to beer in other parts of the Republic, its status in St. Louis is as firmly grounded as James E's span across the Mississippi. Beer made St. Louis. And he was right. Beer was indeed the lifeblood of St. Louis, and empires rose and fell because of the public's taste for a well-crafted brew. The Limp family came to prominence in the middle 1800s as one of the premier brewing families of St. Louis. For years, they were the fiercest rival of Anheuser-Busch and the first makers of lager beer in the Midwest. But today, they're largely forgotten as actual people. They are more remembered for the mansion they built than for the beer they once brewed. They've been reduced to roles as spooky characters in a horror story rather than as living, breathing personalities that shape the history of the city. The history of the Lint family is a true American tragedy, one of triumph over opposition, hard work, perseverance, genius and madness, eccentricity and passion, horror, death, and suicide. It was played out against the backdrop of America's changing landscape of the late 1800s and early 1900s. It's also the story of the beer industry in St. Louis, the German immigrant experience, and a riveting look at the lives and deaths of those for whom money truly was no object. In 1926, author F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, Let me tell you about the very rich. They're different from you and me. Fitzgerald may not have been writing about the Limp family, but he could have been. The Limps were very different from you and me. Welcome to the latest episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. Hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, our second season explores the history, mystery, and hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri, the most haunted city along the Mississippi River. This is the fourth installment in our series within a series about the history and hauntings of the Limp family of St. Louis. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend that you go back to episode 19 and start this little series within a series there. It serves as an introduction to the Lent family and their importance in St. Louis history. This episode will explore the years that followed the suicide of William Lemp, a time of misfortune, scandal, and tragedy for the Lemp family, and the mysterious death of Elsa Lemp, which, in my opinion, remains unsolved after all these years. As we draw closer to the end of the Limp story, we should keep in mind that while this is indeed a legendary tale of one of America's most haunted families, it's also a story of sadness, heartbreak, and the pain of being tragically human. The Limps may have been very different from you and me with their extravagant wealth, but underneath it all, they were ordinary people who lived extraordinary lives, whether they wanted to or not.
William Limp's suicide couldn't have come at a worse time for the Limp Brewery. Because of this, there was little time for mourning. St. Louis was preparing for the opening of the 1904 World's Fair, perhaps the greatest event in St. Louis's history. Not only had William been on the fair's board of directors, but the brewery was involved in beer sales, advertising, and merchandising for the event. He had been directly involved in the fair's planning since 1901, and now his son Billy had no choice but to step into his father's shoes. He took William's place on the Agriculture Committee and supervised the Lint Brewery's massive display in Agriculture Hall, where brewers and distillers from all around the world came to show off their products. It was the Limp Brewery's single greatest moment of glory, and it was Billy's too. The fair became his initiation as the company's new leader, and he was forced to navigate his way through almost an entire year's worth of problems and challenges. But he came through it mostly unscathed. The company's fair operations went smoothly, earned a lot of money, and made Billy believe that it would be smooth sailing ahead. But he was wrong. The deaths of his brother and his father were just the beginning of the trouble that lay ahead. The middle years of the 20th century's first decade became known as the years of misfortune for the Limps. The St. Louis beer market was forever altered in 1906 when nine of the largest breweries in the city merged to form a conglomerate that was intent on controlling the local market. This left the Limps, Anheuser-Busch, and some small neighborhood companies as the only independent beer makers in the city. But of even greater concern was the growing temperance movement in America. The voices of those who were opposed to every kind of alcohol, including beer, were beginning to be heard across the country. And unfortunately, people were finally starting to listen. Terrible news also came for the family. In 1905, it was discovered that Julia Limp was suffering from cancer. By March of 1906, her condition had deteriorated to the point that she was in constant agonizing pain. She died at home on April 18th with her children at her side. The funeral for Julia, the richest woman in St. Louis at the time of her death, was held at the Limp home. She was laid to rest next to her husband in the family tomb at Bell Fountain Cemetery. Julia's death divided a massive fortune between all the children. The older children received their inheritance immediately, but Edwin and Elsa's shares were held in a trust until they turned 30. When Elsa received her inheritance, she became the wealthiest unmarried woman in St. Louis. Julia's death dealt a crippling blow to all of the Limp children, especially after losing their father to suicide just two years before. But perhaps the hardest hit by her death was Billy, who had been the closest to his mother. He was very affected by her passing while also dealing with the responsibilities of running a company that he had never intended to run. But Billy's problems were only just beginning, or perhaps more accurately, they'd really started in 1899 when he'd married a St. Louis heiress named Lillian Handlin. Lily Mae Handlin, she changed her name to Lillian before her marriage and from that point on refused to acknowledge anyone who called her by her old name, was born on April 29, 1877 to Millie and Alexander Handlin. Her father was a wealthy businessman who made his fortune making lamps and other fixtures for railroad cars. Although Lillian had two sisters and three brothers, she was the favorite of the family, adored by everyone, or so she liked to tell people. There was no denying that she was a pampered, spoiled child, but there was no reason for her not to be. She was a girl of immense wealth, born in America's gilded age. It seemed unlikely that from the time she was an infant, she would ever want for anything. Lillian managed to win over everyone with her charm, from European royalty to the cream of New York and St. Louis society. She lived among the rich and famous, taking advantage of her family's money, her father's political connections, her numerous friends, her vivacious personality, and her great beauty. She was one of the city's most popular and beautiful socialites. 
Those who threw parties could only pray she would accept the invitation. And when Lillian hosted an event of her own, everyone in St. Louis's social scene lobbied for an invite. She was so adept at entertaining that after she married Billy, he called on her to plan all the major functions for the Limp family. Lillian loved attention. She openly craved it, but not in a way that would be considered distasteful. Her station in life simply wouldn't allow that. She always managed to stand out in a crowd, though, even in church. She was expected to behave in a conservative manner, and yet she always chose taffeta as the material for her Sunday dresses, so that the stiff fabric would allow her to make as much noise as possible as she swished down the aisle. That way, she'd be noticed by everyone in the congregation, and yet it would seem as if she was not purposely drawing attention to herself. Another way that Lillian used her clothing to attract stares was by wearing a single color as much as possible. Lavender. She included in it every ensemble she wore, often down to her undergarments. She even had a lavender rosary made to match her dresses. Her carriages, and she had a different one for each day of the week, were upholstered in lavender, including the leather on the horse's harnesses. This earned her the nickname of the Lavender Lady, a nickname that Billy would grow to despise. Lillian stood only 4 feet 11 inches tall and was reputed to have had an 18-inch waist. Her wardrobe included hundreds of gowns that were made by a full-time staff. She created a sensation everywhere she went. Many recalled her visits to downtown department stores like Famous Bar, where employees and customers alike were delighted by her boisterous laughter and entertaining behavior. She talked and joked with everyone, leaving harried employees in her wake, as she went from department to department, always followed by several servants who carried the day's purchases. When she traveled by train, it was not uncommon for Lillian to be greeted at the station by a crowd of admirers. When this happened, she would smile graciously and wave one small gloved hand before she entered a waiting carriage. An evening at the theater became a major event when Lillian was in attendance. She always waited until a large enough crowd had assembled in the auditorium before making her dramatic appearance. Lillian loved life and all it had to offer, but if there was a single thing that nearly destroyed her, it was her short, turbulent marriage to Billy Lim. No one could ever really say what happened for sure, but it soon became obvious that the two strong-willed, independent, and eccentric young people should never have wed. Both were used to getting whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted it, and neither was open to compromise. The marriage was rocky from the start, but it soon became a disaster, as everyone in St. Louis was about to find out. On March 19, 1908, Lillian filed for divorce from Billy. In a long petition, she charged him with desertion, cruel treatment, and indignities, all of which were painstakingly detailed. Lillian further stated that Billy entertained women in their home when she was absent, and that these women were allowed to use her bed and private rooms. Billy answered the divorce petition with his own charges against Lillian. He claimed that she was guilty of improper conduct, foul language, and other offenses, including the excessive wearing of the color lavender to attract public attention and violating the terms of the prenuptial agreement they had signed before their marriage. Both wanted custody of their only child, William J. Limp III, who had been born on September 24, 1900. There was no question that both Billy and Lillian loved the little boy dearly. In fact, a few family friends believed that Billy and Lillian might actually reconcile only for the sake of the child, but that wasn't meant to be. They were simply too stubborn and too angry with one another to try and work things out. Family members hoped that they would at least sort out their differences in private, thus avoiding embarrassment for everyone, but instead they chose to expose their sordid domestic problems to the public and revealed the private lives of the Limp family. The public soon learned that the people they had placed on pedestals as glamorous members of society were just like they were. 
fallible, ordinary people whose extraordinary problems were largely brought about by, well, their wealth and privilege. The divorce trial, which began on February 8, 1909, became a public spectacle that was reported daily in the newspapers. Lillian and her attorneys presented horrifying stories of Billy's violent and bizarre behavior, which included abuse, neglect, extramarital affairs, and pathological jealousy. Billy carried a gun with him at all times and often threatened Lillian and others with it. Mrs. Lena Corey, a former laundress for the Limps, told of wild parties that were held in the house when Lillian was out of town. During these parties, drunken guests overturned tables, broke chairs, shattered glasses, and spilled liquor all over the floor. She said the sounds of drunken singing, laughter, and debauchery could be heard throughout the house. Billy's driver, Robert L. Johnson, told of many late-night automobile rides with his employer, all of them involving women and alcohol. Billy frequently struck Lillian or refused to speak to her. Once staying silent, for as long as three months. However, the biggest problem with the marriage seemed to be with their religious faiths. Billy was a Lutheran and Lillian was a Catholic, and by which faith their son would be raised. Each of them produced a contract, allegedly signed by the other, which stated the faith the boy would be instructed in. Both were signed on the same day and said opposite things. It was impossible to know which one was a fraud, but well, if I had to guess, I'm gonna say it was probably the one Billy had. When Billy took the stand, he was given a chance to tell his side of the Rocky and what he claimed was disastrous marriage. He denied the majority of Lillian's allegations, stating that he didn't ever strike his wife and he never pushed her down the stairs as she claimed. He said he never broke down her bedroom door, cursed at her, pointed a pistol at her, and had never disparaged the Catholic Church. He said he didn't mind his son being brought up in the Catholic faith. There was nothing true about his wife's testimony, he said, and in fact, it had been Lillian who had made his life miserable, not the other way around. One of the most aggravating examples of this was her constant wearing of the head-to-toe lavender, which caused people to turn and stare at them wherever they went in public. It had become so embarrassing to Billy that he dreaded going anywhere with his wife. Billy made many allegations against Lillian during his testimony and one startling disclosure, a photograph that was introduced as evidence by his attorney. The audience of the courtroom collectively gasped at the photo, which showed Lillian dressed in men's clothing and smoking a cigarette a habit in which no respectable woman of the era indulged. Lillian explained that her brother had taken the photograph as a joke long before she ever even knew Billy, and added that Billy knew the circumstances behind the photograph and always told her that it was one of his favorites. While Lillian offered a plausible explanation for the scandalous photograph, the courtroom had been shocked by it, and the damage was done. The trial went on for a long, painful week. In the end, the judge granted Lillian an absolute decree of divorce as well as control of the education and religious training of William III. She was also awarded alimony of $6,000 per year, payable in quarterly installments. Billy was allowed custody of her son every weekend and during the summer, and each parent was allowed to take the boy on a separate vacation of two weeks. Billy never spoke publicly about the divorce trial and he refused to give a statement to the press, although he was overheard joking about the fact that he'd gotten off easy when it came to the alimony that he had to pay. But Billy wasn't laughing for long. Lillian's attorneys later appealed the alimony payment and the case was taken all the way to the Missouri Supreme Court. On March 28, 1913, Lillian not only won sole custody of her son again, she was awarded an alimony of $100,000 not the 6,000 she'd originally been given. At the time, it was the largest sum ever awarded in the state. After the initial divorce trial, Lillian and her son went to live with her parents at their home on Lindell Boulevard. In 1915, she moved to New York and took a suite at the Chase Hotel. 
In New York, Lillian lived the same sort of flamboyant, eccentric lifestyle that she'd always maintained as a society favorite in St. Louis. She threw lavish parties where her guests rubbed shoulders with movie stars, writers, and politicians. And she managed to live in extravagance for many years and only returned to St. Louis near the end of her life. Lillian never remarried. She died in 1960, having outlived both her former husband and her son. As for Billy, he dropped out of the public eye after the divorce trial, seeking refuge outside of the city in what was then a near wilderness near Webster Groves. In 1910, high above the bluffs overlooking the Merrimack River, Billy built a magnificent country estate, which he called Allswell. A few years later, he married for the second time. His new wife was Ellie Kohler Lindbergh, the widowed daughter of Casper Kohler, who had founded the Columbia Brewery. Julius, Ellie's brother, owned land adjacent to Allswell, and the two families had been friends for many years. Billy and Ellie began spending a lot of time together, and while rumors of an engagement persisted for months, they were always denied. Then suddenly, without any announcement, Billy and Ellie were married on May 18, 1915, in a small private ceremony. After their honeymoon, the couple went to live at Allswell, but contrary to the whimsical name that Billy had given to the estate, all was far from well in the brewing business. At the Lim Brewery, Billy had failed to keep up with the current industry innovations. Without the passion for the business that his father had, Billy had allowed much of the brewing facility to become outdated, and it was starting to show signs of age. Business had remained strong, and profits continued to pour into the company coffers, but nothing had been updated at the brewery since 1911. That spring, giant grain elevators had been added to the brewery complex, making it possible for the company to increase its daily production, but there had been nothing completed since. As it turned out, those were the last major improvements that would ever be made at the brewery. At the same time, the Lent Mansion was converted from family home to brewery offices. The stately mansion underwent many extensive changes, forever altering its design. The house had already been remodeled once in 1904 when the grand wooden staircase had been replaced with an elevator that helped the aging Julia Limp to more easily access the second floor, but the 1911 renovations were startling. One of the most visible changes was the immense bay window that was added atop the atrium on the south side of the building. Inside the front of the house was rearranged into private offices, lobbies, and workspace for the clerks. In the years just before America entered World War I, the Limp Empire was starting to crumble. Even worse, the entire brewing industry was in trouble. The dark clouds of prohibition were beginning to gather on the horizon, and those opposed to alcohol began to use every method at their disposal to try and bring down the brewing industry, including boycotts, protests, and even accusations of treason. World War I made it simple for those who supported prohibition to turn the public against the brewing industry. Since most of America's largest beer makers were German, critics questioned their loyalty by suggesting they were a threat to the country because they were using grain to make beer that should have been used for the war effort. The plan worked. On September 6, 1918, President Wilson announced that in order to preserve supplies of grain and fuel, breweries would be shut down at midnight on December 1st. A few days later, the Food Administration ended all purchases of corn, rice, and barley by breweries. They could use the stock they had on hand and were welcome to any malt they could find, but once that was gone, they were simply out of business. Many of them were wealthy enough that they could wait out the war and not have to worry about when they could begin production again. They still refused to believe that a national prohibition would end their business for good. Others, like August Bush, saw what was coming. This was only the beginning, and he knew it. He began converting his factories over to the production of many things, fearing the worst. As it turned out, there was nothing that could be done to save the nation's breweries. On January 16, 1919, Nebraska was the last to approve a new law that would end the production and sales of all alcohol in America. 
Prohibition became the law of the land at midnight on January 17, 1920. Like most American brewers at the time, Billy Limp was stunned by the developments that led to the coming of Prohibition and the passage of the Volstead Act, which gave Prohibition its teeth by making it enforceable by law. Again, like so many others, Billy never really believed that beer could ever become illegal. Thanks to this, he was totally unprepared for the news that came in January 1919 that the sale, consumption, and manufacture of alcohol would come to an end in one year. Some brewers, notably Anheuser-Busch, began to work immediately on other projects like ice cream, baker's yeast, and soft drinks. Others like the Limp Brewery faltered along for a time with no clear plan for the future. Finally, Billy decided to follow the lead of some of the other breweries and produce a beverage known as Near Beer, which would duplicate the real thing in all aspects except for the alcohol content. Near Beer proved somewhat popular at first, but once Prohibition was in full swing, those who continued to drink found it easy to obtain the real thing from the neighborhood bootlegger. Demand for Near Beer became non-existent and production largely came to a halt. The Limp Brewery's near beer never even lasted until the start of Prohibition. The company's non-alcoholic malt brew was called Serva, and it was said to be quite good. While Serva sold moderately well, revenues from it were never enough to be able to cover the overhead of the entire plant. Production of Serva was suspended in June 1919. Soon after, Billy closed the doors of the Limp factory for good. The Limps were not in need of money. All the remaining family members were extravagantly wealthy, independent of their brewery profits, and they lacked any real incentive to try and keep the company going. Recent years had been tough for the brewing industry. With the backlash against German-American brewers caused by the war and the propaganda spread by prohibition advocates, sales had been low. Billy never saw the need to upgrade the brewery facilities and unlike his father, was not interested in modern techniques that would have made the aging place more efficient. The end had likely been coming for some time before Prohibition, but the new law signed the brewery's death warrant. The brewery was closed without notice. There were no farewell ceremonies and employees only learned of the factory's closing when they arrived for work one day to find the doors and gates chained and locked. An era in St. Louis brewing history had come to an end. The arrival of Prohibition was the start of another bad time for the Limp family. If the destruction of their legacy was not terrible enough, an even worse event was still to come. On March 20, 1920, Elsa Limp died at her home in Horton's Place in St. Louis. Spiritualist, socialite, suffragist, and independent woman, Elsa had once been the richest single woman in St. Louis. Her death was officially ruled a suicide, but after all these years, questions remain leaving a lingering mystery that will never be solved. Born in 1883, Elsa was the last of the Limp children. While only three years younger than her brother Edwin, she was 18 years younger than her oldest sister, Annie. She was always the baby of the family and lived a different life than her older brothers and sisters. She was beloved by all of them, but instead of becoming spoiled as many last-born children do, she became an independent, resilient young woman who made the most of her short and often turbulent life. 
Elsa was only 23 when her mother died in 1906. Julia had inherited her husband William's entire estate, which was divided among the children when she passed away from cancer. This made Elsa the wealthiest unmarried woman in St. Louis when she claimed one-seventh of the vast estate. Under the terms of Julia's will, Elsa received an additional $100,000 when she married. Always a headstrong free thinker, she joined the suffrage movement, working hard for the women's right to vote. She became the founder of the first suffragette society in St. Louis. She was also fascinated with spiritualism, which was in its heyday at the time. She held many seances at the Lint Mansion during the time when it was a private residence and became friends with Pearl Curran, the St. Louis woman who channeled the spirit of Patience Worth. The most eligible heiress in the city became even wealthier in 1910 when she married Thomas Wright, the president of the Moore Jones Brass and Metal Company. The ceremony was a small but opulent affair. Elsa's dress, which she paid for herself along with her wedding ring, was a Worth original. After the wedding, they took a year-long honeymoon traveling to Cairo, Bangladesh, Calcutta, Bombay, and Nairobi. When Elsa traveled, she took along 28 pieces of Louis Vuitton luggage. When she returned to St. Louis, the couple moved into a beautiful home in Horton's Place, one of the private neighborhoods in St. Louis's Central West End. Elsa's independent nature and her husband's dismissive attitude did not mix well, and their marriage was a storming one from the start. They had frequent screaming matches that often turned violent. During one such episode, Elsa hit Thomas with a vase, opening a large gash on his forehead. Wright was unfaithful to Elsa almost from the start of their marriage. Once she caught him in bed with one of the servants and chased him down the street wielding a fireplace poker. After finding him in bed with yet another woman, she got into her Pierce Arrow automobile and rammed it into his prize Duesenberg three times. It was not uncommon for the staff to find broken pieces of china and shattered furniture when they came on duty in the morning. Elsa had one child, a little girl who was tragically stillborn. She blamed her husband for the baby's death. And eventually, they separated in 1918. On February 1, 1919, Elsa filed for divorce. In her petition to the court, she stated that her husband had destroyed her peace and happiness by his conduct and had long since ceased to love her. She also stated that Thomas treated her with coldness and indifference and absented himself from their home to avoid her. All these things, according to the papers she filed, caused her great mental anguish and impaired her physical health. There were no details ever made public. Whatever else was in those papers, the case was expedited so that within an hour after it was filed, a divorce was granted on the grounds of general indignities. Elsa spent the next year alone, traveling and visiting with friends and family. At some point, she reconnected with her former husband. They traveled together for a time and eventually they reconciled. On March 8, 1920, they were remarried in New York City and then returned to St. Louis and to a home filled with flowers from friends and well-wishers. And a few days later, Elsa was dead. The last days of Elsa Limp Wright remain a mystery, even after all these years. The only version of events that exists belongs to her husband, and it's greatly suspect. However, according to his story, the night of March 19th was a restless one for Elsa. She suffered from frequent bouts of indigestion and nausea, and her ailments caused periods of severe depression. If Elsa was suffering from severe stress such a short time after her remarriage to Thomas, it's possible she was having second thoughts about the reconciliation. Whatever the cause of her suffering, she was awake for most of the night. Thomas claimed that when Elsa awoke the next morning, she said she was feeling better, but wanted to remain in bed. Thomas agreed this was the best thing to do, and he went into the bathroom to turn on the water in the tub. He then returned to the bedroom for a change of underwear, retrieved it from the closet, and went back into the bathroom. 
Moments later, after he closed the door, he heard a sharp cracking sound over the noise of the running water. Baffled by the sound, Thomas opened the door and called to his wife. When she didn't answer, he walked into the bedroom and found her on the bed. Her eyes were open and she seemed to be looking at him, but when Thomas got closer, he saw a revolver lying on the sheets next to her. One of the maids, Martha Weston, stated that Wright called to her about 8.45 a.m. He told her something terrible had happened. She went into the bedroom and saw Elsa on the bed. Kate Ruckert, the upstairs maid, reported that Elsa was on the bed when she entered the room. Elsa took one long breath and Kate took hold of her arm and tried to rub it. I thought there was life in her, Kate later said, and with that, Mr. Wright came in. Elsa took two long breaths and tried to speak, but couldn't. A few moments later, she took a last shuddering breath and died. No note or letter was ever found, and Thomas could offer no reason as to why she would have killed herself. He said she was not even aware that she owned a gun. None of the servants witnessed the shooting, and none of them said they heard the gunshot. If they ever suspected that Thomas Wright had anything to do with his wife's death, they never mentioned it to anyone in the hours and days that followed. A telephone call was placed to Dr. M.B. Clopton, who was quickly summoned to the house. A second call was then placed to Samuel Fordyce, a family friend who was, probably not coincidentally, an attorney. Circuit attorney Lawrence McDaniel said he was notified about Elsa's death a few minutes after 9 a.m. and that it was through this notification that the city coroner received information about was already being called a suicide. An attorney had been called, but no one had bothered to call the police. In fact, the police found out about the whole thing by accident. Edwin Limp had been at a breakfast meeting with Associate City Councilor William Killerin when he received a call from Fordyce urging him to come to his sister's house. Shaken by the news, Edwin asked Killerin to accompany him to Horton's place. As they were driving, Edwin accidentally struck and injured Mrs. Lucille Hearn at the intersection of Locust Street and Jefferson Avenue. She had stepped off the curb in front of Edwin's car and had to be taken to the hospital with minor injuries. When the police arrived at the accident scene, it was Killerin who passed on the information to Chief Martin O'Brien that, quote, something was wrong at 13 Horton's place. O'Brien passed on the message to the 11th District Police Station and officers were dispatched to the Wright House. Thomas became highly agitated under the scrutiny of the police investigation that followed. His only excuse for not contacting the police himself was that he was upset, bewildered, and didn't know what to do. He was questioned at his home for two hours, but was never taken into custody. The police accepted the verdict of suicide, but was it really? There was no real evidence to show that Elsa took her own life. She did suffer from depression, likely exasperated by her unhappy marriage and the death of her child, but her family and friends never considered her suicidal. A pistol had been found next to her on the bed, but anyone could have placed it there. The only witness to the suicide was her husband. He claimed to hear a cracking sound, but he did not say that he saw a gun being fired. The only person with knowledge about what happened in the bedroom was Thomas Wright, who did not contact the police after his wife was shot. He called his attorney instead. He became highly agitated under police questioning. Was it because he was upset about Elsa's death or did he have something to hide? In most suspicious death investigations involving spouses, the surviving spouse is always the initial suspect if murder is likely. However, in this case, the police were quick to dismiss foul play and agreed with the suggestion that Elsa had committed suicide. Was it because of the influence that her wealthy husband and his politically connected friends and family wielded in the city, or was there something left out of the police report that ruled out murder? Those questions will likely never be answered, but of all the deaths in the Limp family, 
Elsa's alleged suicide remains the most mysterious. There are many people who do not, even after all these years, believe that she committed suicide. They're convinced that Thomas Wright had something to hide. While the strange circumstances around Elsa's death suggest there was more to the story than was told, her brother Billy seemed to find little out of the ordinary about the tragedy. Billy hurried to the house when he heard the news, arriving around the same time as Edwin. When Billy was told what had happened, he had only one comment to make. That's the Limp family for you, he said. throwing me off gotcha okay i got you no it's okay now i know now i'm not confused no now i'm not confused okay prohibition became prohibition i'm gonna do my old time radio voice that prohibition became alone the land at midnight okay yeah prohibition became When Billy was told what had happened, he had only one comment to make. That's the limp for it. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Everybody good? Yep. Josh, you good? Yes, sir. Sweet. Okay. Welcome to American Hauntings Podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and all things paranormal. You are listening to episode 22, which is the ninth episode of season two which delves into the hauntings of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me, my co-host is author, historian, crime buff, and founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, you are. Yes, I am. Well, I am you. today. I am today. So Yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, maybe, some, maybe someone else. So we are, uh, I, I should mention, we are recording this episode at the Best Western premiere in Alton, Illinois, which is sort of our home away from home uh, we had lunch i think you just had beer i didn't um, yeah i drank my lunch yeah, we had we had we had lunch it was good a little very, dry it was a little dry yeah we have a, a very they have a very good restaurant here i i feel i uh, i was very happy with my food so um but i guess the big thing we're, we're recording here they they're always kind enough to let us uh record episodes of the podcast here when we record in alton uh, but the big thing we want to mention is that this is also the home of the Haunted America Conference, which is coming up now just uh, about the time you hear this, it'll be about five weeks away, uh, June 22nd, 23rd, uh, 2018 here in uh, at the Best Western premiere. And this is turning out as we were discussing off the air, this is turning out to be our, our biggest, it really our biggest conference ever. Uh, this is the largest one we've ever done. Uh, we have at this point, um, this is when we're recording. I don't know what it'll be when you hear this, but at this point of recording, we only have about 50 seats left, um, which seems like, oh, 50, that seems like a lot. It's not. Yeah, they'll um, go quick. Yeah, toward the end, they go really quick. So if you are still hoping to come, and we hope that you are, um, we're, we're telling you, really need to get signed up soon. 
Um, this episode will come out before the deadline uh, of, of May 22nd, which is when the hotel block is let go. And it's almost full anyway. Um, I was, we were talking to uh, our friend Jacinda, who is the, who's the manager here. And she said that, um, she said there are about only about 10 rooms left. Uh, so we may not even make it until the block. That's how close we are. Uh, we've pretty much taken over the entire hotel for that weekend. Yeah, it's so going to be great. It is fun. And, and it's always fun. It's fun every year. So we're, we're really looking forward to it. And um, there are still spots on some of the after hour events. Um, we're going to be doing more and more posting, more advertising about some of the different speakers and things that are coming up uh, for this, for this event. And it's, it's, we're, we're really looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, I'm, it's I was just, be fun. I was just talking about how, you know, the la- last year it was a couple of days before our first episode came out and it was my first conference and how people just kept pouring in yeah. and people from all walks of life <laughs> yeah. and they were, they were from awesome. all over the country. They were yeah. awesome. And yeah. I'm really excited to come back this year. I'm hoping I get to be more involved as, and maybe do some after hours events. So I'll be yeah. wandering around, yeah. you know, doing we'll random doing, stuff. We're so. going to be recording, doing some recording at the, uh, at the, at the event that you'll get to hear. Uh, we're going to do a, a live broadcast on Friday night. Well, we always say live broadcast. We're going to record it live rather than, yes. believe me, you don't want to be here while we're recording these, what are these, dead episodes? Because it's not live. I don't know what you, you want to call That's it. That's what but, I'm going to start calling um, them. Yeah, I they don't know. Recorded episodes. episodes, whatever. But we're going to be doing uh, some live recording at the, the conference during the Friday night strange stuff. So uh, maybe you'll be a part of it. Maybe you just want to listen, or maybe you'll just hear about it later on if you can't make it to the conference. But we really hope that you will. Um, it's going to be a really fun event. So um, anyway, before we get started with the rest of the show, uh, let's take a quick break, and then uh, we will be right back. If you're enjoying the show, remember that American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference. So if you're into haunted history, you're going to love everything that we do. And you can see it all at our website, AmericanHauntings.net. Our biggest news of late is the release of the new edition of Haunted St. Louis. If you'd like to do an even deeper dive into these stories, plus lots more, you should order a copy of this book. If you're an American Hauntings podcast listener, you get 10% off the book price if you order from our online store by using the promo code PODCAST when you're checking out. See the show notes for the link. I also want to mention one of our returning sponsors, Studio, which makes amazing headphones and earbuds. I always use mine when we're doing the show, and I recently picked up a new model from them, the Trey. Now, I admit I was skeptical at first because these are earbuds, and I never do well with those. They always fall out of my ears, but these don't. They're actually made for walking, hiking, and running and are designed to stay in place with custom wingtips that fit right inside your ear. No matter how weird your ear might be, and trust me, my ear is weird, so that's why I can't use earbuds. But these things will go for nine plus hours before you have to charge them. They come with a clip that keeps the cord secure on your shirt if you move around a lot. And there's even a leather carrying case to keep them from getting tangled up in your bag. Plus the polished metal and matte surfaces have a very cool Scandinavian look if you're into that kind of thing. Best of all, American Hauntings podcast listeners get 15% off anything from the studio.com website just by using the promo code HAUNTINGS. Trust me, you're going to like their stuff. I use mine every day. So check out the show notes for the links and the codes to order. And now, on with the show. Okay, first thing I want to dive into with this episode, uh, I need it on the record. If someone ever tried to give me a fucking near beer, 
I would be insulted. Oh, well, yeah, but the thing is, they still make. I mean, I know still, they do. It's what is that beer non-alcoholic? Where right? O'Doul's? But, it's yes. an O-D- It's a, technically an O'Doul's. That is which because I love the taste of beer so much. I but I don't want to get drunk from it. Why would you drink? I it? understand if you're a recovering never, alcoholic, something like that, nah, but that is different. Still not getting it. But so, that is different. Nah, beer does not taste not good. I don't care what anybody tells you. The feeling you get from beer is well, what makes I, me think I it tastes say good. It, it doesn't taste good at all. It does I would not just taste say good. it's not. And I drink great. IPAs. It does not. Well, taste that doesn't good. taste good. So but I mean, I right, love the but, feeling. But yeah, I just, I know, I, I thought of that too. Um, but I, I think that the idea was is they thought they could sell it to, you know, a German market, especially people who were having beer for breakfast every day. I mean, literally having beer yeah. for breakfast every day. And Sounds they great. figured that they could sell it to them so they could keep up with their traditions. But when you can buy it from the guy who makes it down the street or who is buying it from Canada, and right. smuggling it over the border, and it was everywhere. I mean, they never, I don't think they took into consideration how easy it was going to be to continue to. They should have known. Yeah. It's America. This is a country that has, that was Born, I mean, the Boston Tea Party, those guys were drunk. We just give a big middle I mean, finger to yeah, anything it's not, like the that. People, America loves alcohol. I mean, they just do. Yeah. And it's it's always been a wet country. It was built that way. And this was a this was a social experiment gone wrong. And it, it they never expected it to turn into what it did. You know, they never expected it to become like this lawless enterprise that was going to build even bigger fortunes than brewing and distilling right distilling had built they never had any idea that was going to happen and so after 13 years it left you know the country's law enforcement in chaos i mean and now you had people like al capone and Mm -hmm. all of these other guys who were now you know millionaires many times over selling something illegal that everyone wanted yeah you know, you know, he saw just, an opportunity and he yeah, took it. I mean, you know, he was always, you know, marketed it, marketed it himself as saying, hey, man, I'm just giving the people what they want. And yep. it was true. I mean, it really was. I mean, supply you and know? demand. Yeah. yeah, it makes sense. I think I was thinking about prohibition a lot lately reading these. And I was like, can you imagine just doing stuff sober all the time? This podcast <laughs> with no alcohol? <laughs> it would be a nightmare. Uh, anyway. I'm well, that was never going to happen. Yeah. But it, it did put the legitimate people out of business. I mean, right. for the most part, you know, as I said, Anheuser-Busch and some of those other guys, you know, went into other businesses mm-hmm. and started doing, you know, machinery parts. Diversified and, real quick. Yeah, yeah. Ice cream and anything they could use the equipment they'd been using already yeah. and turn it into something else. That's what they started doing because nobody, most of them, the smart ones knew it wasn't going to last. Mm-hmm. Billy didn't care yeah. if it lasted or not. He was done. He never wanted the job in the first place. Yeah. So for him, he spent, you know, what, you know. 12 years, 13, 14 years doing something he didn't really want to do anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, ran it into the ground essentially because he didn't focus on what he was doing. They never really upgraded the business. You know, they just kept making money with what they had. And I think, I, I really believe his whole plan was, well, eventually, you know, I'm not going to spend any more money on this. So once it's done, it's done, you know, cause I don't really need the money. Yeah. You know, they just didn't really need it. And that's that's one of those things. And, and we'll get to that in the next episode. And I'll, I'll talk about that more. But when everybody says, oh, he was so heartbroken that, you know, after shutting down the business that he waited two years to commit suicide. I don't think he was heartbroken over the business. I don't really don't think he cared. Mm-hmm. Um, even his friends. I mean, he and August Bush were, were, were good pals. Yeah. And, you know, when it was over, he was like, oh, finally, you know, I'm just going to, my wife and I, we're going to go on a world cruise. We're going to take some time off, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 
It's interesting because you talk about, I mean, when you have more money than God, what's your motivator? But it's really sad because they were such like pioneers of innovation in this field. And then they just. William, William, Adam, Adam on a small scale working with the primitive conditions that he had, William was the innovator. And probably Frederick would have been. I mean, can you imagine what if Frederick had lived? Oh, they they would be. Well, Anheuser we wouldn't, Bush have, wouldn't, well, we be wouldn't have all these stories. Yeah. for one thing, well, we yeah. wouldn't we wouldn't have this part of the podcast because I don't think you would have had those suicides. I'd be drinking Falstaff right now instead yeah, of and, you know Budweiser. Yeah, we, uh, we'd be all be drinking limp beer because if Frederick had lived and they had continued on with that business, I think it would have been bigger than Anheuser Busch. Yeah, I mean, I really think it would have remained the huge company that it was, but. I mean, so, there's a what if for you, I right? Know. Well, so so Billy has to step up. Um, his father, w- William, was on the board of directors for the 1904 World's right. Fair in St. Louis, um, which sounded just great. I know it really did. I, you know, I did uh, when I was working on Haunted St. Louis. I I delved into the fair a little deeper than I'd ever done before, and I've always been interested in it. Although I always call it America's second greatest World's Fair because you know it's never going to be as good as the one in Chicago, but still, All right. it still would have been a really that's one of those things that's like the other thing I'd like to see. I've always said I, I wish if I could go back in time, mm-hmm. I'd want to see the Columbian Exposition in 1893, but I'd love to see the 1904 World's Fair. I'd love to see it, you know, how Forest Park is now. I would have liked to have seen it when it was the fairgrounds. Yeah. I just think it would have been so cool. And you see all the photographs of those amazing buildings that they made out of nothing more than glue and sawdust, pretty much. I mean, yeah. all that stuff was fake. I mean, it was all like facades. It's like you know? IKEA buildings. Yeah, really, exactly. <laughs> Particle exactly. board. Yeah. yeah, and it was all put up there just to look amazing, and it did. And yeah. I would have loved to have seen it. I would have loved to have been able to go down, you know, along the pike and see some of those attractions and rides. I, I was writing about one of those rides about how they would, you know, they took people on a trip through hell, you know, and it's like. Really? I mean, this would have been, I would have loved to have seen Sign these me things. up. Yeah. I know. Just to see what this stuff looked like, you know, and the, you know, the, the babies in the incubators, that was a huge attraction. People would come to look at preemies in these brand new contraptions. Like that a sideshow yeah, kind of thing? Yeah, they, they would set up a little hospital and they would literally bring in preemie babies and put them in these glass incubators so that people could see it was a new development in yeah. babies. I mean, usually preemies just died. Well, yeah, then. infant mortality well, so rates now always they been had, terrible. Right, now they had this new way, and people wanted to see it, and they flocked to it. And they, I mean, they had like a gift shop where you could buy like little soaps that looked like babies and stuff. I'm serious. <laughs> I mean, it's the crazy amount of souvenirs and things that we don't even – I mean, you go into antique stores around St. Louis now, you'll find you find little things, and you'll find – you know, ashtrays and, and paperweights and stuff. But some of the coolest, a lot of the paper type stuff, You Lisa found me, um, I, sh- I should mention that Lisa is here recording with us. Lisa oh, found hi. me a uh, a card from the Hereafter, which was that trip through hell attraction on the pike. And it said Hereafter on the pike. And we really weren't that sure what it was, but I told her, I said, that's got to be the World's Fair. And so, but... So much of that stuff is gone. I mean, it's like, you know, the limp advertising stuff that you can't find anywhere. It's the same kind of thing. You know, that stuff just gets tossed out because now we consider it something really cool. But at the time, it was just garbage. It's like, you know, old movie posters and lobby cards and stuff. They just threw that stuff away. And now we'd love to have that stuff and it's not around. Um, So that kind of stuff is hard to find. But, I mean, how cool would it be to find one of those little baby soaps? 
you know, that looks oh, like a little baby. Be, you know what awesome. I mean? It'd be awesome. Those would be my decorative soaps that you're not allowed to really <laughs> right, use, but exactly. they're in the bathroom all the time. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if any of that stuff is still out there anywhere. It, you know, might have be, I but... ever told you how I accidentally got an ashtray from the World's Fair? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> it was totally an accident, but it was the first time I'd ever been at an auction, mm-hmm. like a real auction where you have to bid on right, things. Right. And I got my own card and everything like that but i was actually trying to bid on what was coming up next which was like a animatronic frankenstein <laughs> like for yeah, my halloween, halloween decorations right, right. and you could hit the button and it would like stick its hand out right. you could put candy in its hand and right. stuff so i wanted that but i had never been to an auction before so i didn't know how it worked it wasn't what was up for bid so i was bidding and got <laughs> into a little bit of a bidding war with someone across the room and I was like I can't believe anyone in this room wants this Frankenstein more than me <laughs> and then when they came, when they said that I had won I can't remember what amount I paid I'm sure it, a lot. I'm sure it was not yeah. uh, you over, know over under 250 it, no it, it was still pretty cheap okay. I mean it wasn't a big deal but when I went up there I'm like reaching for the Frankenstein and they just point me towards the ashtrays I was like, I don't even smoke. Like, (laughs) why why am I getting this? And so I just went along with it. I grabbed one, went back to my seat, found out what I had done wrong. And then I did win the Frankenstein. But when I got, you know, to looking at the ashtray, I realized what it was. And it's total steal. And I still have it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. Accident. Yeah, I had a. Lisa I had a spent big, four hundred dollars that day. Yeah, no kidding. I had a big World's Fair book with just filled with photographs and stuff. It was really old, put out around the time of the fair. Uh, but Oren who, Taylor, my son, who I'm sure is not listening to this, but someday will, uh, ripped it apart when he was a very small child. So oh. I still remember this. I have not forgotten. Toddlers so, are the worst. I know they are the worst. So. <laughs> All right, so we're. In we're talking about the middle years of the first decade of the twentieth century and, uh, and the we years may have of gone off on a tangent. Yes, Go the ahead. but we're, we're, we always bring it back. But the years of misfortune uh, for the limps. Yes. So we've already talked a little bit about the, the beginning of the end yes. um, of the downfall. So in 1906, nine of the largest breweries in the city merged. The limps and Anheuser Busch yeah, were left they became to, the, to fight. The independent beverage company, which made IBC root beer. Oh, ah, okay. IBC. It's the same All right. company. Uh, the breweries are all gone, uh, but, but the root beer the, but they still have this, you know, the conglomerate that they're making this root beer still and cream soda. So. Right. And then in that same year, 1906, Julia Limp dies from cancer. Um, her husband had just died two years earlier. And that her death divides up a huge fortune among the children, which always pans out well when the kids just get a bunch of money right right as, yeah. as we well, know well it, it actually worked out well for m- pretty much everyone really pretty much i mean you know so but they all had money already is the thing. yeah i guess and, you know, maybe it so doesn't matter you're, you're cutting up a, a fortune to give to like um anna whose husband is super wealthy already mm-hmm. and she's already got money um Hilda already has money from the Pabst Brewery that, right. her, that her husband PBR. is the son of Frederick Pabst. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Lewis had plenty of money. He was racing horses by this time and moved away. Charles was a real estate magnet, um, you know, really powerful in the Democratic, you know, uh, area of town, was a, 
you know, head guy in the Democratic Party in St. Louis. I mean, all of them had money already and had already pretty much left the brewery. Nobody had any part in it anymore except for Billy. He was the only one still in the family still running. So everybody had money already and then we're now given this huge chunk of money except for edwin and elsa who they're had too to young they right were 30 yeah they right. were in their 20s still so and so okay so billy marries a woman named lillian who yes. loved attention yeah loved being yeah. really tiny <laughs> and wearing lavender <laughs> yeah uh i want to go through they had a bad marriage i want to go through some of these charges that were in the divorce because well, that, I, I actually didn't detail everything you didn't detail. if you if you read the book I mean, I detail everything in the book. Well, I'm, I'm going to check that out. I'll just go <laughs> through some of the highlights here. But charge, so Lillian charged him with desertion, cruel treatment, indignities. Um, he entertained women in their home when she was absent. These women were allowed to use her bed in private rooms. Billy, in turn, fired back and said that she was guilty of improper conduct, foul language, other offenses, including excessive wearing of the color lavender to <laughs> yeah. attract public attention, violating the terms of prenuptial agreement that had been signed before their marriage. And one of the biggest problems um, was that it was their difference in faith. It wasn't the infidelity, no, but the it was, violence. Right. It was, it, that was the big. Well, here's the thing. Back then, um, they lived while they were married. And this we're not talking about Frederick. And his wife here. We're talking about a couple who got married because they were wealthy, ki wealthy unmarried children from very wealthy families. And I'm pretty sure that that was. I wouldn't say it was arranged, but pretty I'm saying much. they got pushed into a marriage, and yeah. you know, not realizing just how incompatible they were going to be. Mm -hmm. um, because I mean, Billy, uh, I mean, was kind of a nut. I mean, he'd already done a lot. He'd already been doing a lot of stuff for a while. I mean, he'd already been in, in trouble with the law about beating people up and starting fights and threatening people with his gun. I mean, he was just, he was just a rich kid with no responsibilities. And a who lot of alcohol and resources. he yeah. wanted, yeah. And so, you know, he was probably really, you know, living kind of in a way that a lot of people expected him to at the time. And really, back then, um, they were living, they were married, living fairly separate lives anyway. And uh, so the infidelities were probably not a big surprise. Um, and probably would have been overlooked. Um, men were able to treat their wives pretty much any way they wanted to back Rule then. of thumb kind yeah, of. Yeah, it was loss. just, you know, so the fact that he smacked her around a little bit, so did half the city, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, um, doesn't make it right, but that's just how it was. I mean, it wasn't until, what, the 50s and 60s before the police started showing up for domestic calls. Mm -hmm. I mean, because if a guy slapped his wife around, well, hey, you know, it's his wife. You can do whatever he wants. You can do whatever you want to your kids. If they beat their kids, well, that's the way it goes. You know, hey, everybody got beat every once in a while. I mean, that was the attitude that people had. Yeah. So none of those things were really that out of the ordinary, unfortunately. I mean, we look at it now and, and you know, we point these things out and you're like, oh my gosh, I mean, how horrible. But back then that was, you know, Sure, you can put it in your divorce because technically you shouldn't be doing that, but it was kind of publicly accepted, right? You know, but the marriage, the the, the religion thing was the real problem. That's, That's where the that problem was the kicker. came from. And I think that the the, the William the Third, the the boy, I think was became like a something they were using against like each a pawn other. that yeah, they yeah they use against in the divorce. Other. And you know that the whole argument had been that well. You know, before we got married, Lillian said that, you know, we could make we could raise him as a Lutheran. Oh, mm -hmm. no. Billy said we could raise him as a Catholic. And they both had a prenuptial that was signed and dated and 
notarized, but obviously one of them was not and, real. And you believe you know? it was Billy's that was I'm not guess legit. Being Billy, being Billy, right? His was probably the one that was fake. Well, it's the one and that looks like it, it was written <laughs> while you're hammered. You know, <laughs> right. like he had probably had it made uh, so that he could use it as a legal document. Probably yeah. by the time of the divorce came along. And then, but you know, his word was going to be taken over hers in court. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like you know, they sat there at the trial. She did end up winning. I was going to say, so but, eventually she gets a hundred k. Well, but at first she didn't. Right, it was like first, six grand or at something. At first she won, but she was only going to get six thousand dollars a year. Now this is a guy who's bringing in ridiculous a couple million a yeah. year. You know, and now she's going to get six grand. So the thing was, what really hurt her case. She may have won, and she may have gotten custody uh, of William the Third. But the things that he brought out about her to a jury and to the courtroom and to mm-hmm. the judge were scandalous. I mean, she too much used lavender foul language. No, it wasn't even the lavender. <laughs> right. It was the it was the foul language in the cigarettes. It was oh, the smoking. Geez. It was that photograph. While the judge That's, is probably smoking, right? And but, <laughs> but but women were not supposed well, to. Yeah, be women smoking, don't do that, especially publicly back at that yeah, time. Of course not, and especially women of her class. Yeah, you know, and so. That really damaged her. So she grudgingly won the case, but they weren't going to give her much. And six thousand dollars a year. I mean, you got to. I mean, yes, her family had plenty of money, mm-hmm. but they didn't expect to be supporting her anymore. She had a husband, right? And the husband was supposed to be supporting her. And if she was going to file for divorce, the husband was still supposed to be supporting mm-hmm. her. When it was over, especially if he was found to be in the wrong, six thousand dollars a year wasn't going to cut it. Six thousand dollars a year you, now she could spend even would be six thousand dollars on uh, one shopping trip, a new lavender you know? dress, exactly. Yeah. So that wasn't going to work. And uh, you know, Billy thought the whole thing was really funny when he walked out of there. And while he never spoke to the press, you know, he he told his friends, you know, ha ha, look at this. Look what I got away with. He well, seems like a guy that would drop six grand on the ground and not bother to. Yeah, pick honestly, it up. honestly, of all the limps. I've always thought he seemed like the biggest asshole. Yeah. I mean, really. I mean, just there yeah. isn't anything. The evidence is pretty there damning. There really isn't anything very likable about him. I, I've always I've always thought he, unlike William, who was, and this isn't a hard and fast rule, but let's be honest, it's fairly a common rule. L- little guys with attitudes yeah. always have something to prove. Of course. They always do. Well, then and, the quote-unquote Napoleon complex right, and sure, that sort of you thing. Know, and so, and, and we've all known our share of, yeah. you know, these little guys that think they need to, you know, really have to prove something. You right. know, they have the biggest pickup truck. Like, I was going to say, it's know. the guys are the big pickup yeah. trucks. And so know? William, while William wasn't like that, and, you know, and I've known people that are not like that, are some of the nicest people I know are these are small guys, you know. But on the other hand, Billy seemed to be that guy who really had something to prove. And yeah. he had to show that he was the – you know, the best fighter and the, you know, could drink the most and, you know, and why? I, I mean, know. you already have everything. Was. I don't know. He had everything and, you know, he, he, and he really, he really pissed it all away. I mean, he really did. And, you know, let the brewery slide, got disinterested in it and just didn't want to ditch, just didn't want to do it. And I'm going to, to prove a point that I don't want to do it, I'm just going to let the whole place fall down around my ears. And that's mm. pretty much what he did. Uh, but you know they the, they took him back to court and they they tagged him for a hundred grand a year, so which is that's much a more big serious difference. Uh, not that he couldn't afford it, and again, right. hundred thousand dollars a year—that's pocket change, man. Yeah, to what the kind of money they were making at right. the time. But it wouldn't last for much longer. But it didn't matter because he was done. He was going to retire and let it ride. They were just going to travel, you know, and 
relax. That's that was his plans. He had a lot of real estate investments, a lot mm-hmm. of other investments. So when the brewery closed, eh, so, so what? So prohibition kicks in on one seventeen nineteen twenty. When did the brewery close relative? To Shortly that? after that, um, he just knew that it wasn't going to last. It mm-hmm. wasn't going to happen, and uh, there was no way near beer wasn't going to fly, and he wasn't going to put the money into it to restructure things the way that, say, Anheuser-Busch had done during Prohibition. And you right. know a lot of those brewers started putting together, um, they started selling, like, separate components, all the parts that you could use to make beer, but all separately right. to people, to, like, home brewers who would then start making their own beer. So a lot of them were, were right on the edge of breaking Prohibition yeah. laws. And a couple of them, like Joseph Griesedick, who bought Falstaff, and we'll talk about that next episode. But uh, he actually got in trouble several times during yeah. Prohibition. He had charges brought against him because he skirted just a little too far across the line. That was tough to do. You're trying to you know, run this company, but you can't publicly be out promoting anti-Prohibition. Right. You know, but some of them did. But when the workers came to the brewery, uh, he never even told anybody. It was just locked See, that, up. Th- again, no there's, company the, emails, there's the no glaring – well, but there's the glaring <laughs> difference between William – and Frederick and the way that Billy did things. Mm-hmm. I mean, William knew all the guys. I mean, he knew these guys. I mean, they'd worked for him for 30 years. He'd go work with them, he, drink he'd with them, hang out. He'd go stand side by side with them, yep. drink beer with them on breaks. I mean, this was a guy who everybody knew, and Billy was the guy who was just sitting in his office down the street and didn't have the day-to-day hands-on kind of thing. And so when he decides to close the brewery, he doesn't – I mean, the the thing to do would have been to meet everybody at the gates that morning when they came into work. Have and say, the hard hey, listen, conversation. Guys, you know, here's, I'm sorry, but this is the end. Instead, he just locked everything up, had the security guards chain everything shut, and then just put a sign on it that said closed. Yeah. So those guys showed up for work, and it's like, uh, you know. Uh, but that's, I mean, he just didn't really, and think about that kind of thing. Well, didn't some know? of them live there, too? So, like, were they well, just, like, shit out of life? By that time, I, I'm going to say, and, you know, that's an interesting question. I never really thought about that because they did have those dorms there. Yeah. But I'm thinking by then, that may not have been a, a thing anymore. right okay I mean, those were back in the that was the 1870s 1880s yeah you know and i think that um that was oh, so william's was heyday generation kind of thing. And, yeah we're talking about another generation of guys right since then. So say it's bad enough to lose your job but you get evicted right. at the and, same day well, and a lot of those guys would have still been the same guys working there at the time when they were in their 20s mm-hmm. well now they're in their 30s and 40s or, or later and either retired or married and probably as guys they probably just didn't filter keep out filling it yeah. in, you know. So that'd so, be my guess. So tell me a little bit about Billy's estate. Is it really pronounced Allswell? Allswell. It's just not spelled that way. So it's he's just he's, one word. He's putting out positivity yeah, into the trying. into the universe. Right, he's trying. Well, you know, Edwin had already moved out to that area and had built his home out there. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I think that he found an attraction in the area outside the city because I think by the time the divorce trials and everything was over and all that scandal, I'm sure he, you know, didn't feel like, I mean, he was already embarrassed about so many things and, right. and probably just didn't feel like dealing with people. So now it's, it's kind of, this is, I like to think of this as the equivalent of William um, using, using the, the caves. caves to get to the brewery yeah, in the morning. He moves exactly. way outside the city, which back then Webster Groves was way outside the city Whoa. in the middle of nowhere right. in the woods yeah. and builds this big estate out there and uh, would travel back and forth. You know, when he decided to come in to work, mm-hmm. because I don't think that was a high priority by that time. You know, we're talking about the teens and 
that's just a couple of years before they closed things down. World War One was beginning to start, um, and I only touched on it in the in the in the, the dialogue. But the anti-German propaganda that was going around at the time was was really bad. Yeah. Um, if you delve into the story of, uh, say, Anheuser Busch, and you find out that after um, uh, Adolphus died, Lily, you know, they had home. They had a home in Germany. I mean, it was never. This was never a bad thing before, where they traveled back and forth between Germany and the United States, and uh, Lily and the children were in Germany when the war, when America entered the war, mm-hmm. and or when the war started, and couldn't get back into the country, and almost couldn't get home at all because they, you know, there were all these accusations that the German brewers were traitors and all this stuff, and all of that was being spread by. It was all fake news. Yeah. It was being spread by the Fox News of the, you know, 19-teens. So it's um, fake of, news, and then they wouldn't let people into the country. That sounds right. really foreign to me. I know. Doesn't it sound me. familiar? Yeah. yeah. Um, but this was all being spread by these, these propaganda political people who were really just trying to get prohibition ramrodded into, into shape. Mm-hmm. Um, the war was just – they used the war as part of the prohibition effort mm. uh, between the, the – politicians and all of the temperance groups that wanted you know prohibition brought into effect because it was going to cure all of the social ills of the united states 10 percent of the, created many many 10 percent of the know. population doesn't drink i feel like i don't understand yeah, i don't how I, it just get it. well they they had convinced people that by banning alcohol that you know husbands would stay home with their wives fathers would <laughs> stay home with their children uh, nobody would be in bars. Uh, crime would be cut down. There'd be no, you know, no prostitution. There'd be no, you know, all these things. I mean, they created this laundry list of things that this was going to solve that's, that's by getting a, rid of liquor. That's adorable. Yeah, it, isn't it cute? Because it all turned out to be, of course, a, a huge joke. And imagine I mean, it the, was a disaster. And imagine the cops failure. that are trying to like reinforce this stuff, who are probably also all, always drinking. All drinking. Like, well, yeah, because they, nobody wanted police jobs but irish well we all know mm-hmm. you know how that goes i mean um so the reason most, well there's the reason why al capone's going around bragging that 90 percent of the chicago police force were on his payroll because they were I mean, because they were <laughs> yeah. right and you know i mean a lot of people were paid to just look the other way because most people didn't believe in the law um the people who were enforcing it for the majority of them didn't believe in it you know um but it was the law of the land so you always had guys like elliot ness who were going to stick to this, you know, who ironically died from, you know, being an alcoholic. It's funny um, how that works but out. Not during prohibition he didn't because he right. was a stand-up well, guy. That would that be a more thing. Right. Uh, but there were, you know, plenty of other guys who didn't believe that, you know, or didn't didn't see it as the ill that it was made out to be by the newspapers yeah. and such. I will say though, drunk people are the worst. Well, and yeah, I know. Like, I, I don't. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree absolutely. with you. I, and myself included. Yeah. No, Annoying, I, I, obnoxious. Yeah. Dumb. I mean, there are a lot of things, but it, it certainly wasn't going to cure all the problems of the country. No, no, no. Time. If I just stopped uh, drinking 100%, I would still have a bunch of other issues. Well, you know, right. like and, it's not going to yeah. just be a cure all. And, and we did. Plus, I mean, it, it, it caused, I mean, it caused a huge vacuum in the economy yeah, of the country because now you've had an entire industry that's been put out of business so you have all Al these Capone. people who are out of work who are now back to work delivering beer right. because someone had to fill that hole and that's the way it's the vacuum like and you talked it, about yeah. it ha- power vacuum happens exactly. all the time and it took a year or two for 
you know, all these organizations to get their act together to switch from gambling and prostitution, which was always making money. Right. And always profession. make money. Yeah. But they wanted to change it into something else. And so they just shifted gears and realized, you know, we can make a fortune doing this. Yeah. You know, and I mean, it changed the country not in good ways. Yeah. I mean, prohibition was a turned out to be a, a horrible idea. It was good for know? some people. Well, it was good for. Hey, listen. I'm thrilled it happened. I'm glad I was not alive at the time, although I think I would have been a great bootlegger. But <laughs> I agree. Um, I'm thrilled that it happened because half the stuff I write about happened because during of that, prohibition. Yeah. So, yep. you know, or either during it or because of it or, you know, came out of it somehow. So, you know, it's a great thing now. Yeah. But at the time, I'm not sure what it would have been like living in that era. But, you know, we're talking oh. about the Roaring Twenties was this great time of you know all this this huge expansion and all this money and partying and great things and we're talking that was the that was all of prohibition yeah but no one cared right you know that was the thing i mean it was the the law that no one really wanted i you know i believe very few wanted i believe my dad when he turned 18 the drinking age was 18 and then like a year later it was bumped up to 21 so he could drink and then he couldn't drink oh yeah and i was like yeah. I couldn't drink the entire time, and that didn't stop me. So I can't imagine if it was legal and yeah, then very illegal. Very unfair. That would have just been a nightmare. Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to get into some more spooky stuff. Yes. If that's all right with you. And also, I want to talk about my favorite limp, Elsa. Yeah, and I, I believe it is your favorite as well. Um, so she held a bunch of seances in the limp mansion. Yeah. That is what I would want to go back in time to attend. I know. I would to like attend. to see that, too. That yeah, would I be just insane. really would like to have gone back in time just to hang out with her. Yeah. Because I, I'm thinking that she would have been, like, the life of the party. Yeah. Because she just didn't care what people thought. Yeah. You know, I mean, she was very young, you know, was the, at 23, was like the richest single woman in St. Louis. And, you know, used her money, you know, to try to get women the right to vote. Yeah. So, you know, she was an independent. She was a free thinker. She probably, you know, thought at that time, hey, you know, whatever a woman can do or a man can do, a woman can do. So I think she would have been a lot of fun to hang out with. I think I really even, do. even in her older age, I even wrote oh, down, yeah. she sounds like the coolest grandma you never had. Well, but she never got old enough to be a grandma. Well, She's I just, in her 30s, that's but. what I think oh, okay. of when I, when I think of her <laughs> is just, I just would have loved to have hung out with her. But, I agree. But yes. I agree. Um, so. Okay. So she married Thomas Wright. Yes. She caught him cheating multiple times. One of the times with she, the maids, right? Usually. And she yeah. chased the woman down the street with a fireplace oh, poker. Chased him? No, no. It was never the. Women oh, it she was went him. After. It was always him. Well, either way, I've said keeping it classy. Yeah. But I support this 100. percent Well, I and you know, it. if you know anything about that neighborhood they lived in. Well, I know Central West End, but uh, Horton's place is, uh, and we'll actually talk about it later because there is another. The the it got its name from a ghost story. Okay. So we'll talk okay. about that later in a later episode of the podcast because yeah. we'll talk about some of the when we start talking about some of the haunted houses and stuff. But in that same area there in the central West End, it, it's a it's one of the communities in one of those little neighborhoods, those private enclaves there. Mm-hmm. And so chasing your husband down the street with a fireplace poker drew would some attention. Got some attention. Um, but even better is when she decided to ram his car three times. Yes. First, and what was that car called again? A Duesenberg. Duesenberg. That was his Duesenberg. But she that is a, a hilarious Arrow, name. Which were, was a was a pretty sharp car. Look some of these up. Google these cars. And you, they are they are some sharp cars. So, I mean, and expensive, especially yeah. at the time. Oh, of and, course. And, um, 
you know, she took her car and just rammed it into him, backed up, rammed into it again, and, and one just more to time. teach him a lesson. Yeah, and so know? that's the Tiger Woods um, kind of story. So I, I think love it. they had a, a a fairly horrible marriage also. It sounds uh, a little see, rocky. I think that, and again, so you've got this rich woman who's, I'm, I'm sure, courted by a rich guy from a brass and metal company, this mm-hmm. rich son. And they say everything. Everybody thinks, "Well, that'd be a good idea. Let's marry them off." And they they take a year long honeymoon. Yeah, and they get married with all this money, and then settle into real life and realize that I don't even like this. Yeah, and um, it just. I mean, it didn't last long. I mean, they had a a horrible, terrible, short marriage, and then round two up, and then decide to try it again. I that's I can I can't wrap my head around that. I've got a picture of uh, her. I put it in the. It's in the the Lent book that I wrote mm-hmm. um, of her on one of her, her trip in between her marriage and remarriage. And she's on a ship with a bunch of her friends and Edwin is there. Yeah. And there's just, and she's just like glowing, you know, having a ball. And then she meets up with this guy and gets sucked back into, I mean, I'm going to guess it was some kind of codependent. Right. Right. Of course. I don't even know, but she gets sucked back into marriage with this guy again. And then she's dead. And then, yeah, they get married. She comes home and three days later, she's dead. So, okay. Let's talk about that a little bit. So this is one of the suicides, quote unquote. Right. Um, I want to talk about it. It's very interesting the way uh, that... Thomas describes it as hearing a cracking sound, which I've never heard anyone say that about a gunshot before in my life. It, it's a little depends on the acoustics, I guess. I, I guess in so. A ba- he's in a bathroom, she's in the bedroom. But I, if I think cracking sound, I'm thinking like a rifle in the middle of a field, right, like sure, that, you know. Sure. But then, so um, he finds her almost dead, essentially, um, but doesn't call the police. Calls an attorney. Which is, you know, suspect. He calls a doctor first. We'll, it, we'll okay, does, okay, does call calls a doctor. Calls a doctor first and then, then calls his attorney. And the police find and out a, by accident. O.J. Simpson kind of moves. Right, and you know, there's a so. there's a white Ford Bronco. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, so the the police find and out by accident. for the real killers, so just so you know. <laughs> yeah, the, you know. If the glove don't yeah. fit. Um, so, and, and what was it? Um, one of her brothers was on the way to the crime scene and hit somebody with yeah, a car. Edwin was at breakfast <laughs> with a, like an, an attorney from the city. Uh, it was a friend of his. They were having breakfast and having a meeting and um, got the, a phone call. They tracked him down, got a phone call, and he says, you know, something, something's happened at my sister's house, and she's been shot. We've got, we've got to go. Will you go with me? And uh, so they hop in the car together, take off speeding down the street, and and – I, I didn't put all the detail in this. There's more detail to it. But the woman did step off the curb yep. in front of a car. And, you know, and again, cars still fairly new, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I guess. And Never saw it coming. And then Edwin smacked her with the car. And, and then, this is on Locust, too. But it felt too. awful, I'm sure. I mean, they stopped. He's on his way to his sister's house who's dying. He's already got a lot of shit going on. To make sure this woman's okay. <laughs> and, you know, they called the police. And then the police show up. And the city attorney says oh yeah but so you know the, i'm sure the cop probably said well and they sent a captain out for an accident so that, again, that, that gives you deal? an idea of how much money the limps had somebody calls the police station the 11th district station by the way which we did an right episode we on. did yeah somebody calls the station and the captain goes out because it's like hey one of the limps just hit somebody so you know it's probably well what do we need to cover up right you know and off they go right. and then and he payday. gets there and the attor- city attorney says oh yeah well we're going to a sister's house i guess she got shot or, 
or something. And the guy's like, what? You know, because yeah. the police don't know anything about it. So he calls the station and they send officers to the scene. By this time, a couple of hours have passed mm-hmm. and she's been laying there. But she didn't die right away, time. correct? There was no, a maid or, or someone a that... A maid came in to check on her. And one of the housekeepers came in and said that she rubbed her arm, which, you know, that's like... You know that's an old thing about restoring circulation. Oh, you know? I was I was wondering uh, that's why she was she said, rubbing her I arm, I could bring to, life to, to back bring into life her... back to get her circulation. I didn't going. know that was a thing. Maybe she'd be okay. And um, but what I found was interesting about her firsthand account, and again, it's more detailed in the book. But in her account, she said that when Thomas walked into the room, Elsa tried to tell her something. Oh shit! But couldn't talk. Yeah. And then died. Took a, you know big breath and died it's almost like you're saying the book's better than the podcast like the book's well better i'm not than saying that that's what I'm, I'm saying i'm giving that's you, what I'm, I'm saying i'm giving you the detail read the read the book yeah her her firsthand account is in the book of what the maid actually told the police uh but that's mm-hmm. one of the things she said was that you know he she tried to speak when mr yeah. wright walked in and then but couldn't mr wright i love uh, that's his name even though it's yeah. spelled differently uh-huh. i love that's his name yeah. and he was definitely not mr wright, right so. and, and and i it's it's interesting to me there was no note again no. and something else that i know this happened you know with other people too but who kills themselves in the morning? It just seems well, like yeah, an like evening activity. Yeah, doesn't yeah. it? Like the end of the day. Okay, well, this day definitely didn't right. get any better. Yeah, you loosen your tie and, and then, then you In the end morning, it. when you wake up in the morning, you think it's a new day. Right, I get some coffee. Until something proves to me it's going to suck. Yeah. I'm going to go with the idea this might not be so bad. Although, you know what? I can say I have woke up on many days. On the wrong side of the bed. And just felt, I don't even want to get up. Just put a bullet in my head. Just going to suck. But they didn't even no, know, not quite that. They far. didn't even know she had a gun. <laughs> right, right. Or at least that's well, what the husband I mean, said. She was a limp. They all had guns. Right. Yeah. Apparently, so in the nightstand, I think everybody had guns. <laughs> all the limps had guns in the nightstands. As yeah. We, as so we know. well, I mean, I guess my thing was is that well, that's I mean, and again, we're going by what he told the police, right? Which I find highly, I find the whole thing very suspect. Do you think? Do you think he did it? I do. I personally, uh, that's just my opinion. Yeah. And since he's dead, Allegedly, I'm not slandering conjecture. him. No, I don't have to say that because he's dead. You can't libel the dead. Um, <laughs> I do honestly believe that he killed her. That's that's my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I, that is my opinion is so, that he killed her because um, I think that he lost a lot of money when they divorced because he lost his share of her fortune. Do you think that I mean, whole you, second marriage was a sham just to kill her? I, I think I think he weaseled his way back. I think by then I and and you know you could de- we could delve into this a lot deeper. But I'm going to say that by then his business wasn't nearly what it had been when they first married. Mm-hmm. And I think he weaseled his way back into her life. I don't think she I think he purposely sought her out yeah. because they had mutual friends and I think he knew where she was and I think he set it up to meet her. And I really think he weaseled his way back in and convinced her. I mean, and by the time she got home to St. Louis, she had all of these stomach issues and ulcers again and all of the stuff that had been bothering her for the entire time they'd been married, which I think was a situational thing brought on by stress could cause horrible some ulcers, marriage. Yeah. And now it's back. Yeah. Um, is that enough to maybe make her kill herself? Maybe. I'm not saying she couldn't have. Yeah. I just, I'm just Very really suspect. suspicious of the whole thing. Yeah. It's just nobody was there but him. Um, he didn't call the police for you know, the police. He never called the police. The police weren't even contacted for two hours. Mm-hmm. He called a doctor and his lawyer first. I mean, who does that? Yeah. I mean, even if you're even if you're fabulously wealthy and you think your first call should be to your attorney, you still call the police. 
or you call an ambulance. Yeah, you, you call know, there somebody. were ambulances in St. Louis at the time. I mean, City Hospital was in operation, and there were other hospitals too. So it's not like he couldn't have called an ambulance. She was still alive yeah. when he found her. So why didn't someone call? And it just seems like they... I think he stalled as long as he could, and then went yeah. out and called the maid. Oh, something terrible's happened. Right. Not call an ambulance. Not call the police. Just oh my gosh, come here! Something terrible has happened. So that she could come in and see Elsa laying in bed right. with a pistol next to her. Now he had a witness. Right. I don't know. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm. You know, I mean, no, no. getting carried away with my suspicions, but that's that is honestly how I feel about that little situation. There. Right. So, well, mostly because she's my favorite limp, and I just don't want to believe she killed herself. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's no, part of the part of it too. It's like Frederick and Elsa, I think, are the coolest limps, and you know, Frederick died for for real, and Elsa, I think, just died under really suspicious circumstances. Well, then, so. and so it was Billy. Am I correct? That said, that's the limp family. That's for the you? limps for you. Yeah, nice guy. Yeah, I mean, just because, yeah. you know, he needed something else to make him more jerk-like. Right, I want, yeah. One that's of the what like he him. says about his sister, so. Yeah, I. And the fact that that even ever got recorded and printed tells me that whoever he said it to, probably, I don't know, his brother was probably there, who really had very little to do with him. Edwin didn't have a whole lot to do with Billy, yeah. especially after his dad died. Um, I mean, he'd already left the company by then. Probably, you know, the doctor, the doctor that was there, Edwin or something, heard him say it. Somebody, somebody reported it. It's yep. like leaks that come from, you know, the White House. Right. Somebody's telling who's saying what. And I think that somebody thought, well, I'll, people think he's a jerk now. What do you hear this? This have, is what he said about his sister. Have there been know? a lot of leaks from the White House? <laughs> I, no, no, it's all great. Um, uh, okay, that's that's all that I have. Can you tell me a little bit because? Every time we record a limp episode, you add a limp episode. Can yes. you tell me? Can you tell the listeners what they yes. can expect coming up? Yes, there are two episodes coming. Two. I know there we keep saying final, that. No, there but really it's always are true. It's two always true. final <laughs> episodes of the limp story for the podcast. Um, that's not going to be the end of St. Louis. We've still got a long way to go. We oh, haven't yeah. even come close to the exorcism yet. But which I don't know how many. Ep- don't even ask me how many episodes I'm that's going to be. I'm I don't not know. going to. But what I'm telling you is that I, I'm 90 percent sure. 90% sure that we are have two more episodes. I'll take it. Uh, the William and Charles episodes, and then finally uh, the kind of what happened next and the ghost story episode of the limp. So I'm expecting two more. Right. So, so anyone that complains about a lack of ghosts, just just stop and just wait. Yeah, it's coming. And then every other episode will be it's, ghost stuff. It's history stuff. hauntings, legends, exactly. and lore. So hauntings Actually, is who's complained? I don't think anybody has. Maybe it's just me. Oh, but, okay. So well, I, I, need say, to sh- no, I need to shut up. I keep getting people who tell me that I've really been enjoying these limp episodes. The limp episodes have been performing have better been, than anything else, which is awesome. Maybe we need to stop with the hauntings and just do history <laughs> and, and conjecture or, or rumors about dead people. Yeah, That's really, what we need to really. do. St. Louis scandals. St. Louis scandals. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. All right. With that, I guess we had better wrap this up. Uh, I want to say thanks to everyone for continuing to listen to the podcast and sharing it with your friends. And thanks especially, I mean, thanks, okay, kind of thanks to everybody who just listens. But really thanks to all of you who post those reviews for us on iTunes. It really does make it easier for people to find the show. We've been getting a lot of people who have been um, tuning into the show for the very first time, and we hopefully they've been going back to episode 19 like we've been begging them to. 
Uh, but thank you to all of you who have been writing those reviews and sharing it with everybody and passing it on to your friends. We really enjoy doing the podcast, and, and I'll be honest, we're going to do it anyway, even if you're not leaving reviews. Yep. Uh, but we appreciate the fact that you are, and we do want to say thank you again for listening. And uh, until next time. Yeah, and I just want to chime in on that. We have over 170 five-star reviews, which is amazing, and we're getting close to 100,000 downloads. Awesome. And when we hit both, like when we hit that, I don't, I'm going to do something crazy. I don't know. It's unpredictable. He's I don't know what's going to gonna happen. podcast without his pants on. I might. All what, of us will be frightened. You won't see it. So. I, little do you know, I always <laughs> podcast not, without my pants on. right now. Never so. wear pants. No, we're going to do something really fun, though. Or I don't know. We'll do a video or a live. Some, we'll I don't, do something. I'm going to do something fun. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, thank you again, and we will see you again in two weeks. The American Hauntings Podcast is a way to combine historic record, folklore, science and observation, and imagination to uncover more about America's most haunted places, including St. Louis, Missouri. American Hauntings is a bi-weekly podcast. You can hear new episodes every other Tuesday, so please tune in to hear our latest episode and help us take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes by searching for American Hauntings or by going to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com where we also have links to some of Troy's books, as well as information about his upcoming ghost tours, events, and haunted happenings. As for your host, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CodyBeckSTL or at CodyBeck.com. Please say hello. You can find Troy on Instagram at TroyTaylorGram, on Facebook at the Troy Taylor Author page, or at AmericanHauntings.net. This episode of the podcast was written by Troy Taylor and is produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. Some of the music in this episode was written and recorded by Charlie Brockes at Lighthouse Sounds in Alton, Illinois. Boom, that's a wrap.